We're continuing in Joshua, and we'll be reading Joshua chapter 8, verses 1 through 29. I'm warning you, it is a longer passage, so steal your minds and let us read the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush, and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the, before the people of Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near the city and encampment, encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was the north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua as they were drawn away from the city. Not a single man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, 
for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness, where they pursued them, and all them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until the evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stand there to this day. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we call out to you for understanding. Lord, we pray that the truth of your passage, of your sovereign will, your holy judgment, your divine compassion would be made plain to us. Lord, teach us and instruct us from your word. Make it clear in our minds that we would live it out in our lives as well. That your gospel would ring true in our ears. We would see the great things that you have done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is rather a lengthy account, and it's part of a larger account. We've had a few messages on the city of Ai already, um, but the context of what we're talking about, we see that in the book of Joshua, God is sending the people of Israel to the promised land of Canaan, and he has done so for two stated purposes. The first purpose is that Canaan, the people of Canaan, have been living in such terrible sin for hundreds of years that he has been long-suffering and patient with them, but it is time for the judgment of God to come on the land. He is using Israel as a way to destroy Canaan. It is God's judgment. But the second reason is his grace and compassion and mercy upon the people of Israel. It is to fulfill his promise to Abraham to give them that land. He says explicitly, this is, you, you don't get this land because you, you, you've done anything to deserve it or to earn it. It is for the promise that I have given to your forefathers. And so this is not Israel's conquest. This is not Israel's battle and war that they are choosing to do. This is God's conquest, his divine judgment, and his fulfillment of his promises. God has been speaking to Joshua, and this is something that nobody else in Israel has. Nobody else in Israel has access to his voice. 
but Joshua the prophet here. The same as Moses before him. And so he's been giving these insights from chapter 1. He's calling him, God says to him, do not fear. No one will stand before you, but you will be victorious over everyone. He gives them explicit instructions how to cross the Jordan, how to defeat Jericho. And then we saw at the first account with the city of Ai, we strangely do not hear the voice of the Lord speaking to Joshua. Yet they go forward anyway. They've been given explicit instructions up to that point, and then they kind of go on autopilot after that. We need to keep going and keep moving. The city of Ai is the next thing on the list, and they fail. Joshua and the leaders tear their clothing. They pour dust on their head, and Joshua cries out to the Lord, Why have you done this? Did you lead us here that we would just be killed? And the Lord reveals that there is sin in the camp, that Israel has sinned against God by taking of the devoted things from Jericho. And so the people of Israel find through the Lord's revelation that it was the man Achan, and they bring him to judgment. They kill him and his family and burn all of their possessions, including what they had stolen. Right now is where our story begins, where we're picking up. And it would be reasonable to think, well, are we really okay with God now? Or is God really present with us? Because, because we just went into battle and he wasn't there. Are we really good now? Is sin really taken care of? And here we see the reversal. God has rooted out sin from Israel and now has restored Israel to himself. And we'll see, we see in this reading that we read that that now it is reversed. They are no longer defeated, but they are now victorious in I. We see that God's voice and instructions return. He is not silent, but gives Joshua. He speaks to him clearly. This is how you will conquer I. It is not enough for us to work and work and work our hardest to try to serve and work in our own might and in our own wisdom. We must have God himself. That is the only way of success. That is the only blessing that we have. The gospel, this word of God, this Bible that we have, is not an incantation. It is not a program for us to earn our way in this life. But it is God's clear instructions on how we are to be restored to him. To have his presence in our lives. Israel failed without the presence of God. In fact, even the great plan of salvation, the great plan of salvation for all that is earned through Jesus Christ, that would not be effective without the presence of God. It took the very presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. No other sacrifice would do, only the presence of God. And as we see with Israel, they're in the promised land. They're there. 
But without God's presence, it's worthless. And so it is with us. We are trying and working to get to heaven. Well, what is heaven without the presence of God? It's nothing. God's presence is everything. It is what gets us there, and it is the joy that we have when we are there. We're going to go through this chapter in breaking it down into five sections, just looking bit by bit to pull out the significant, some of the significant portions. In verses 1 and 2, we see God's instructions to Joshua. So the first thing is God's inst- the Lord is instructing Joshua, and he speaks to him. He says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Those were very welcome words because they had just been defeated. And those were words that echo from earlier in the chapter, but now that sin has been taken out, now that, that it has been taken out of the camp, and there is restoration between Israel and God, there is no need for fear. There is no need to be dismayed. But rather, he he then gives him instructions on what to do. Take up the fighting men with you. Arise and go up to I. See, I have given them into your hands. That is the king of I, his people, his city, his land, and everything. And God gives them a plan to put an ambush there. Joshua may have been a brilliant leader, a brilliant strategist, a brilliant general, but this is God's plan. God devised it. God gave it to him. And so it is a great encouragement to him that these things come from God himself because when they devised their own plan before, it failed miserably. You only need two or 3,000 men. Don't worry about it. It's not the case. These are God's instructions, and then Joshua reiterates these instructions, and they're more fleshed out in the following section, verses 3 through 9. He delivers that message to the people of Israel, to his mighty men of valor that he's bringing with him. And he explains to them that this is going to be an ambush, a faint attack. You're going to have 30,000 men here behind the city, and we're going to go up to the front just like we did before, and when they rush out, we're going to run away just like we did before. Except this time, God is present with us. This time, we will not be running away in fear. We will be running away with a purpose, with a strategy to conquer. It's interesting here to see that God's plan uses their past failure to their advantage. Their past failure was that they sent men up there and the city of Ai just whooped them and they ended up running away and the people ran after them and were killing them as they ran away. This was the result of Achan's sin. It was Israel's failure. But to repeat this same tactic... They were going to do the same exact thing and draw the people out with a purpose. It was God's sovereign plan to use 
their past failure because none of our sins and failures can overcome or undermine God's sovereign plan to fulfill his promises. He promised that this land would be theirs. And no sin of Achan was going to completely undo it. No failure of Israel was going to undo it. He promised and would fulfill. That is the same for you and I. There is no sin, no failure, no anything that you could have done in the past that will undermine God's plan of salvation. But rather, he is wise and sovereign and using even our past failures to his advantage, to your advantage. We see these things in the story of Joseph when his brothers sinned against him. And threw him into the pit and sold him into slavery. God has no love of sin. He hates it. But their sin, their wickedness that they did against him, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. They could not undermine God's plan of salvation or God's good will towards Joseph the same way we see in his promise for Israel. It's also important to note that God did not even need Israel to do this. He did not need Israel to go and execute judgment because if you even look back at Sodom and Gomorrah, he did not bring, rise up an army. He didn't say, I need you to do this for me. I need a favor from you. No, fire came down from heaven and consumed. Yet he chose to use a weak people people who have failed, people who have sinned. Paul speaks of his own weakness in, when he talks of his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 and 9 read, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We see the power of God being made perfect here in this campaign because Israel had been a failure. And yet it was the power of God working through them that gave them success to use a people who did not deserve the land to a people who were terrified for their lives because if word got out that they ever failed, all of Canaan would raise up against, rise up against them at once. They'd say, oh, they're not so big and bad after all. That was one of the fears Joshua expressed in chapter 7. The next section, verses 10 through 17, we see the actual beginning of the attack. So we have God's instructions, Joshua relaying those instructions, and then the actual attack. And the complete effectiveness of it. Joshua and the people go up, and they run back, and everybody in, in, in the city of Ai says, there they go again, we're going to do the same exact thing, and they run out. And not just the, the, the soldiers from the city of Ai, but also the neighboring city of Bethel run after them. And they team up against them, and they run after them. 
And it's important to note, I think, to remember, rather, in this section, the reason for God's judgment on these people. It's hard to read a military campaign and just root for a bunch of people dying. It is a hard thing to read. But God has noted throughout Scripture, throughout the Pentateuch, and even some in here, the lives that these people lived. The people who rejected this God and went into idolatry. Not only that, but sacrificed their own children to these false gods, burning them and killing them for their own pleasure, for their own good, for these false gods. All of, the t- all of these laws that we read in the Old Testament are terrible, terrible things don't, that we're not supposed to do. And, and we would think, you might think, why would you list these things? Why, why do you have to list all of these terrible things? Who would think to do that? And yet so many times in the law it says, don't do this, don't do this, like the people were doing in Canaan before you. God's just judgment is coming down on these people. He has given them centuries of long-suffering patience. And there has been no change. This is the fate of all mankind outside of the grace of God. The faint attack that we see here is is a common military strategy. It's something that you see in Alexander the Great and in many other battles. But the greatest faint attack in all of history was performed by Christ himself. God made flesh. Who could conquer the Son of God? Of glory, Who could conquer God, the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? Who could do that? Who could, could pull him down? Who could conquer him? No one. Yet, God sent his Son to earth, and he put on flesh that could suffer, that could die. And the enemies of God leapt on that. Christ suffered and died in the ultimate victory. We see more detail further down in the next section as the ambush is actually executed, verses 18 to 23. And we hear God's voice ring out again into Joshua's ear. He says, stretch it. He tells him to stretch out the javelin toward the city. Let me just read that section real very quickly. Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. And as he does this, the people behind the city rush into the city and set it on fire and smoke goes up into the sky, and the pursuers that are running after Israel to destroy them look back and their hearts melt because they know that they have been defeated. And there is nowhere to run. There is no energy left in them. And there is nowhere to go because there is Israel on this side and there is Israel on that side. 
This is that final victory, that judgment that God is putting on the city. And we see that same victory in the work that Christ did in his faint attack. Because the world, the flesh, the devil, all enemies jumped at the chance to kill God, to destroy his plan, to end things now. But when Christ died on the cross, it ultimately fulfilled his plan for salvation. It was not God dying and becoming powerless. It was God dying for the sins of the world, restoring us to him, that our sins might be placed on him, our punishment might be placed on him, our curse might be placed on him. And so all enemies of God and all those who would want his creation destroyed, the devil himself, rooting against God, are ultimately defeated by this faint attack. And Christ did not just pretend pain. He did not pretend suffering. He did not pretend death. He did not run away and then turn back with a gotcha. He really died. But because he was so pure, because he was God himself, because he was a worthy sacrifice, he did not stay dead. The following and final section, verses 24 to 29, show the final result, the utter destruction of the city of Ai, that it was made a heap of ruins even to this day. That is the day of the writing of this document. That Joshua did not draw back his javelin until every last one was put to death. And the king was brought before him and was hung from a tree or was hanged from a tree. It says at sunset Joshua commanded and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stand there to this day. It is significant that they put the king to death this way because it was a, a form of punishment for very heinous sins. We read in Deuteronomy that there are many types of punishment for different types of sins. But a very, very heinous sin, someone would be put to death. And for yet an even more heinous sin, one would even be hung from a tree. We read in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the very same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So what they are doing is out of obedience to God's law. Several commentators have pointed out that this, this being hanged from a tree, it's not that they are cursed because they are hanged from the tree. You can't curse someone from, by God by hanging them from a tree. They are cursed by God. Because in this book of the law of cause and effect of crime and punishment, if you are hanged from a tree, it is because of a very heinous sin that you have committed. And you are cursed 
by God because of the sin that you have wrought and the heinousness of it. And so one who is hanged by a tree is cursed by God. And the reasoning here is that we should not defile the land by keeping that person in his defilement visible in this land that God is giving them. It should ring in your memory being cursed on a tree because that is the very same fate that Christ took upon himself. The fate we see of this king is the, sin, is the fate of every sinner. He is their representative of the city of Ai. He, their king, who ought to have called them back to living in righteousness, who could have restrained the evil that was there, and he did not. He was their head and representative, and as such, he was given that shameful death. But Christ, our representative, our head, our king, was perfect and sinless, no spot or blemish upon him. Yet he went himself willingly to be hung from a tree, to be nailed to a cross, to be accursed by God for our sake, so that that would not be our fate, so that in him we might receive the blessing of the presence of God. We see in this account a great general, a great man of God, Joshua, who used a faint attack against the enemies of God to bring judgment on sinners, who raised a javelin, a spear in the air until every last one of them was dead. But our Joshua, who this one points us to, our King Jesus is greater still. Because with his faint attack, he did not bring judgment to the world, but judgment upon himself to save the sinner. He did not raise a spear in violence that day, but one was raised and pierced through his side for your sake. The conquering that Christ has done is over sin and death and hell. It has been placed on him fully. We see in the punishment here and the judgment here the true result of the heinousness of sin. And by that we see the true greatness of God's grace that he would take that judgment upon himself to save us, to purify us, to bring us into his presence. If you trust in Jesus to take your sin upon himself, the words of the Lord from this passage ring true for you. Do not fear 
and do not be dismayed. Though we deserve the judgment of Achan and the king of Ai, though death reigns around us, we may go forth with confidence knowing that our God is with us. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, for your precious spirit that brings truth and life that applies your salvation. Lord God, for your awesome power and planning for our salvation, for the pure and perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Lord, we pray for this gospel to ring true in our ears and our minds and our hearts that it would guide us into day after day. We pray these things in his name. Amen.